Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Today we are joined by our guest host, filmmaker Heather Lenz best known for directing and producing the Sundance documentary, Kusama Infinity. Our special guest today is Sally Rubin, a non-binary, Emmy-nominated documentary filmmaker. Rubin's directorial credits include Deep Down, Life on the Line, and Hillbilly, which have been broadcast on Hulu, Independent Lens, and PBS nationally. She's received grants from the NEH, the NEA, Chicken and Egg, the MacArthur Foundation, and the Fledgling Fund. A graduate of Stanford's documentary program, Rubin is a proudly out queer professor at Chapman University. Today, Heather will discuss her animated short documentary, Mama Has a Mustache. Thank you, Claire, so much for the lovely introduction. And Sally, thank you so much for being here today. I absolutely love this movie, so I'm thrilled that we get to chat with you about it and hear all about the making of the film. For anyone who hasn't seen it yet, can you please tell us what Mama Has a Mustache is about and what motivated you to make the movie? Sure. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Mama Has a Mustache is a 10-minute fully animated documentary about kids and gender identity outside of the traditional binary. Um, It features clip art, mixed media, and the voices of 12 children ages 5 to 10 talking about their own gender and their parents' gender. Um, What motivated me to make the movie? Several things. Uh, You know, on the most basic level, I had done several documentary features that took a long time to make, were very heavy in topic. My last film was called Hillbilly, took almost five years to make, um, and, you know, spent so much time raising money. And I really just wanted to do something that was short, fun, funny, something that was kind of the opposite of Hillbilly, something um, that I could bang out relatively quickly and explore new territory with regards to sort of the documentary genre. I had never done a fully animated documentary. I had never done something that um, was really structured uh, basically through a bunch of questions. Um, So there's kind of five or six key questions that I asked the students, and those formulate the structure. You know, I always find as a filmmaker that my work is so much better and more engaging when I'm really learning something during the process of the filmmaking. So that was a big, big um, part of what motivated me to make the film. Then there were a couple other factors. Um, I'm a college professor. I teach at Chapman. And over these past few years, I would say especially the past really like three or four years, I just saw a huge, very rapid spike in the um, gender identities of my own students being sort of outside of the traditional binary. So I always had 
cisgender heterosexual students over the years. I've taught for 12 years now. But pretty you know, quickly, I started to have not only transgender students, but actually non-binary students, a lot of them. So I definitely thought to myself, gosh, there's definitely a nationwide trend um, that's, you know, happening quickly where young people, very young people actually, are um, just stepping outside of the traditional gender binary with regards to their own identity. So that was a big piece. And then the last piece really is, you know, personal. I'm, I'm, do identify as non-binary? You might think if you saw me that I looked more butch or more like a tomboy. But I also, when I got pregnant um, eight years ago, decided that, well, yeah, I decided that I wanted to get pregnant. And even with what you would think of as more sort of a masculine appearance, um, I didn't see that as being in contradiction to my own desire to carry a child. So I just knew that there was a lot of interesting fodder in there. And that's how I knew it could be a good film. Well, it absolutely is a good film and timely, as you said. And I wonder, because I did um, hear you talk about the film once before, I wonder if you could tell us about the title in particular. I believe there was a story that, that led to that. Yeah. Um, well, I'm proud of the title. I usually feel that thinking of a title is like totally my Achilles heel. I almost never have a title for my film until the very end. Often I end up having mixed feelings about my titles. Titles are just not my thing. Um, but with this one, years ago, my daughter, who's actually turning eight in just a couple days here, she was about two years old, and I was, like, carrying her through the living room. And I remember she looked at me, and I think um, I think that I was actually, like, bleaching my mustache. <laughs> and she kind of laughed and said, <laughs> Mama has a mustache. And I remember thinking to myself, that would be a really, really good title for a movie. I need to make a movie just because that title exists and it's so catchy. Well, I agree. It's a great title. So uh, good good job to your daughter for coming up with it, and good job um, on your um, part for recognizing it and utilizing it. So um, as you mentioned, this film combines audio interviews with animation, clip art, also archival footage, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that process. And you mentioned it was new for you. And also what role, if any, the pandemic played in the decision um, to use the audio interviews. And, mm -hmm. and maybe you could talk a little bit about, like, just the way you um, approached it from a logistical standpoint. Sure. Um well, the pandemic was definitely a big part of why the film took the form that it did. Um, I originally had the idea to film, you know, sort of um, experimental interstitials, 60p footage of kids on playgrounds, maybe playing with dollhouses. I kind of had this vision for some live action footage that I thought could be worked in there that could be kind of cool. Um, and when the pandemic hit, I mean, I did my first interviews for this film in February of 2020, I was really just then diving into production and kind of getting going. I had delayed the film a year because I was so busy on distribution of my last film. So I was finally ready to go. February 2020, I interviewed a couple of the kids, and then we all know, of course, what happened in March 2020. Um, so, you know, suddenly I couldn't do the interviews in person with the kids anymore. I was able to do a couple of them outside. Um, then all of them had to be done through Zoom, uh, I interviewed some kids who live on the other side of the country. I had their parents 
um, hold up like the iPhone to their mouths and recorded their audio that way. You know, it was really like I just sort of had to beg, steal, and borrow whatever I could to secure the audio in those interviews. Um, so that kind of, just because I had started the film right at the beginning of the pandemic, that sort of dictated um, the fact that there wasn't really going to be any live footage in the movie. So then I figured, okay, well, I'm going to need other stuff. Um, I definitely knew that I wanted it to be animated. I wanted it to be inside the imaginations of the kids, and I knew the only way to do that was to sort of delve into the world of animation. Um, but, you know, as I went along, I mean, I did these, basically I did the 12 interviews, um, then I cut them down to an audio string out, audio only. I had about a 20-minute string out, and then I hired an editor, actually, and um, she worked with me to cut that down to the 10-minute locked audio cut. Um, and then, you know, once that was in place, that really was the start of the process. Then it was a question of envisioning, okay, we've got this cut, we have our chapters, there's a set structure, the cut was totally working in audio-only format. Um, then we really had to think about what do we want to see and when, what color palette do we want to use, how do we want this to feel, um, you know, whose point of view are we looking at these images from, is it going to be from a grown-up's point of view listening to kids, or are we aiming for more of a child's point of view? Um, so we started sort of big picture, and I say we, it was really me and my editor, Max, uh, my director of animation, Max Strebel, and then also Stacey Goldate, my editor, kind of putting our heads together to think about um, how we would put together the visual element of this film. And I had always, for a long time, I'd say going back to um, grad school, when I learned about Rick Prellinger and the Prellinger Archives and a lot of the archival material that's on archive.org, I had always been um, really interested in and kind of fascinated and obsessed by those old um, newsreels, old commercials from the 1950s with these traditional housewives, um, you know, the old sort of public reels that were put out to educate the public, sometimes about gay people or about... Um, you know, that uh, especially specific mores related to gender, that women should be at home, that men should be out working. I always thought to myself it would be really fun to get in there and turn those on their head, put punk rock music to them, you know, literally cut them up and kind of repurpose them. And that, um, so that was what I did in the film. You know, we did a lot of research into that archive material, downloaded and ripped a bunch of, material that was in the public domain and incorporated that into the film in part um you know thinking that it, i really wanted to sort of tap into uh it's hard to articulate but sort of the zeitgeist of america throughout the decades going back to the 1940s and 50s and sort of come up to today I love that material, too. It's really fun. In addition to that, the film does contain an excerpt um, from Queer Eye of Jonathan, and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you know if he's seen the film and what his reaction was, and maybe you could talk about how you were able to include that clip. Uh -huh. I have not reached out to him to send him the film. Um, a couple people have recommended that I do that just to see what he'd say and get a quote from him. I haven't done it yet. I've been wanting to secure insurance first before the film goes public in any way. Um, you know, at this point, it's just sort of a private uh, project. Um, but, yeah, I, I will be very curious to hear what he says. And it's funny, you know, to hear this 12-year-old boy 
articulating how he learned about gender outside of the traditional binary by watching his mom watch Queer Eye. It's actually one of my favorite yeah. moments of the whole movie. Um, you know, yeah. he just, he's just uh, commenting, he's analyzing and breaking down Jonathan's gender identity, that he has long hair, he wears high heels, he talks like a girl, but he also has a beard, and he's tall, and he has the body of a boy. You know, he's just, you, you hear this little kid, like, um, totally deconstructing the gender of this person in a really fun way. One, yeah, one thing that's great about these this film is that the kids are just not judgmental. They just mm-hmm. describe what they're seeing. They're very optimistic. Yep. They're often kind of like giggling about things. Like they just seem to be having like a lot of fun and, yep. and um, they just sound so wise at the same time. So it's, it's really great. And, and so speaking of these kids, I'm wondering how you cast them. Did you know all of them already when you started? Um, well, some of them I knew about five or six of them were close family and friends um, of my daughter's, so my nephew's in there, and then a bunch of her friends are in there. Uh, that made it, you know, fairly easy, or at least relatively easy, because I already knew the parents. They knew me. They knew my work. There were no kind of question marks about, you know, the ethics or morality behind my work, so they were happy to have their kids be in the film. Um, plus, this is L.A., where people are pretty generally friendly to the media. Um, then... I, you know, I really wanted to make sure that I had a diverse uh, set of kids with regards to both their own racial and ethnic identities, their own gender identities. um, They're too young, any of them, to have sort of articulated sexual orientations, but I did want to make sure that the sexual orientations of gender identities of their parents were also fairly diverse. Um, So, yeah, you know, as I said, there's 12 kids in there, and they come from a totally diverse um, sort of background set. Some of them are local, and then others, you know, to meet some of them who I didn't know, I joined social media groups on Facebook and sort of introduced myself and my work, talked a little bit about my project, and just kind of put out feelers to see if anyone would be interested in joining, and I did not have trouble at all finding kids to be in the film. Well, they, they are just an excellent group of um, kids that you picked. And I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the most surprising things they said during the interview. We we definitely hear you responding to them and what they're saying. And, and it's clear sometimes you're really getting a kick out of what they're telling you and that you're, you know, having as much fun as they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that I was surprised. There wasn't a ton that surprised me. Um a few things did, though. I was definitely surprised at how little they knew about how babies were made. <laughs> you know, I, largely it was five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. Um, they knew nothing. And I told the parents that I wasn't going to tell them, you know, that was the parents' place. I mean, one kid says babies are made from eggs combined with sperm, which is accurate, but he was made with a donor. So, you know, none of them... Uh, we're thinking at all about sex, sexuality, sexual orientation, which I think is a really key takeaway for the film, um, that sexual orientation really is very separate from gender identity. I, people forget that. Um, so that surprised me. You know, the things that they said when I asked how babies were made were, were just really, really funny, and those are in the movie. Um, 
And then, you know, I was pleased to hear them talk about how they do feel lucky to have transgender or non-binary parents and how it frees them up. One little girl talked about how having a transgender dad frees her up to explore her own gender in a much more, um, just a much more sort of adventurous and playful way. That surprised me to hear such a young kid articulating that. Yeah, that is interesting. So we've talked a little bit about the fact already that this was your first animated film, but I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned you did um, an audio cut. So at that point, you really just had a, a blank screen you were looking at. And mm-hmm. and I was wondering, if because animation is quite expensive, and and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that process of how you started to fill in the visual gaps um you know during the process mhm um well mostly you know i always vaguely i knew that we would find a way to animate it i was never worried even when the focus was really on the audio only i was never worried um about finding a sort of visual motif and a visual landscape for the film i knew that it would come and you know once we had our 10 minute string out we just started brainstorming i think we did an exercise where our associate producer, the editor, and me each took the audio only cut into a premiere timeline and went through and put in text cards for what we imagined that people might be seeing while we were hearing everything. Um, you know, and then we sort of put our heads together to see what we had done talked it through to see what we liked and didn't like, um, and then we started having conversations with our animator. So we had that cut before we really started the work with the animator, actually. Um, and, yeah, as I said, you know, for me the big thing, I was actually less picky about what we saw and more picky about the bigger picture. Number one, I wanted, I really wanted these clumped chapters, which ultimately in the film they're punctuated by those visual representations of the questions being asked. You see these sort of clip art letters asking the questions. Um, I really didn't want it to be this one running blah. I really wanted there to be an arc in there. Um, So that was important for me. And then, um, you know, for me the other big thing was thinking about point of view. Uh, I mentioned this earlier, but I really wanted it to feel that we were within a kid's imagination, coming at this from a kid's perspective, not from a grown-up's perspective looking from the outside at kids. And the way we did that is we took pictures of um, my daughter's hands. Those are the hands that are in the movie that are sort of painting, drawing, cutting. You know, the perspective actually, if you look at it, is from a the kid's perspective. You see the hands coming out from either side of the screen almost as if you're sort of within her head. And she's kind of putting together the movie. So that was a really important piece, and that was literally just taking pictures of her hands with my iPhone and then having the director of animation use those to animate. I love the idea that um, uh, that you shared of, um, every, of having multiple people go through and kind of talk about yeah. what they imagine would be there. That's great. Yeah. Great tip. I mean, it was the pandemic. Yeah. You know, we were all at home. Nobody could go anywhere. Yeah. We all had lots right. of time. So we would just sit there and just play. A lot of it was just playful, just thinking, you know, what could we do that would be unexpected and how can we just have fun with this? It never, ever felt heavy. It never felt stressful. 
Yeah, that's. I think that comes through. It's a very joyful, positive film. Yeah. And so you've made several features, and and this is a ten minute film, and you've talked about some of the reasons. Did you was that a length that you zeroed in on ahead of time, and and decided you were going to make a ten minute film, or is that after you edited things together, is that kind of a length that felt right? How did you come up with that? Well, I definitely didn't think that I could fit all of my desired content into 10 minutes. And when we, you know, when I did the interviews and then we started to edit, I mean, I had a 20-minute cut that felt really nice. Um, but then I worked with the I worked sort of in conjunction with the editor trying to get it down. A lot of that 10-minute length was due to the time and money limitations with the animation. Ten minutes of animation is a lot, and actually it isn't even ten minutes of animation. It's more like eight because there's a lot of archival footage in there. Um, it was just the time and money. You know, I didn't have a ton of funding. My animator was working for really, really cheap, a real pittance um, compared to what people should be getting for that kind of work. And, you know, he really said, I just, ten minutes is just the max. So it forced us to trim the story down to that length, and ultimately I think it actually really works at that length. And it's also been a really nice length for festivals. A lot of festivals can program in just like a quick little 10-minute short. It's so easy to plunk it at the beginning of a feature or as part of a shorts program. So, yeah, I've really liked actually working with that shorter format, especially after doing several features. I think it's a great length. It's it's perfect. And um, in addition to the benefit you just mentioned for festivals, it seems like a great length for impact campaigns. And yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about impact campaigns and um, and tips for anyone who's considering doing one with a documentary. It's very popular these days. Yeah. Um I mean, the film is ripe for impact work, you know, especially now with the national conversation around um, and the controversy around whether or not gender identity and sexual orientation should be taught in elementary schools. I mean, some states have outlawed it, as we know, Florida, um, don't say gay, and others. So, you know, it's really a very hot topic right now, and the film, I think, um, serves a really critical role actually in that conversation where in such a short period of time in just 10 minutes it both educates people around alternate gender identities it introduces the concept to people of having younger kids think and talk about this stuff some people have never even seen kids talk about anything other than i'm a boy i'm a girl um and you know 10 minutes is the type of length where you can do like an hour-long um, question and answer session, you can literally do a 10-minute screening right then and then follow it with a 45-minute conversation around gender. And it's just it's such an easy, effective way to get people thinking, talking, and to do it in really sort of a non-preachy way. So we've been working with corporations, working with um, employee resource groups at these corporations around pride and gender identity, doing screenings of the film. Um, we've partnered with a bunch of the major nonprofits nationally who are doing work around both um, LGBTQ issues and also some around youth and um, gender identity issues. You know, it's just been a very, very easy film to get out there and sort of put it to work uh, socially. 
I can see how it'd be super effective. Could you talk about some of the places you've screened it and, and what's been the most meaningful part um, for you of of these Q&As with the audience, things people have shared with you after seeing the film and hearing you talk? I think the most magical screenings that I had were at the San Francisco International Film Festival a few weeks ago. The There's this amazing program there um, where local schools, elementary schools around San Francisco partner with the festival and they bring students from the elementary schools as field trips, part of their school day with their teachers to the Castro Theater which seats um, 700 people. So when I went up there recently I was able to go to several of those screenings, a couple different school screenings there at the Castro with all of those kids, you know, 700 kids sitting there looking at and laughing at the screen and engaging with the topic. Um, That was really, really magical. And then following that, I was able to go back to an elementary school classroom nearby and show the film to a bunch of third graders and then have a conversation with them for like an hour about their own gender identities, what they think about gender, what they think about others' gender, how you have to be... um, as a boy or a girl or something else. And it was just so interesting and so fun and refreshing to get to talk to all of these kids. And I really thought to myself, wow, like this, these are the kids who need to be seeing it. And it was wonderful to have it in the educational context that way. Yeah. So I want to shift a little bit and just talk about filmmaking more generally. You're multi-talented. You wear a lot of hats. You direct, produce, edit. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you like best and least about each of each of these different um, tasks. Uh-huh. Um, well, I did edit, you know, I was a full-time documentary editor for about five years after film school. I really, really loved that. That was my path, you know. Um, I started teaching 12 years ago. This amazing job came up teaching documentary full-time at a wonderful film school at Chapman, and I just didn't feel I could pass it up. But I really, really, really loved that craft, that piece of the documentary filmmaking craft. And I think that to this day, you know, in some ways I think that's where my greatest skill set lies. I don't, I'm not, I don't have the lifestyle anymore where I'm holed up in an editing room 12 hours a day. But I do think it's made me a more effective professor and filmmaker to have really kind of gotten my start just based in story and not editing only my own films, but having to, you know, learn to help other people put their stories together. So I absolutely love documentary editing. I teach a documentary editing class at Chapman. I always work very closely with the editors on my own films, or else I do edit my own films still. Um, You know, it's just been a craft that has served me very, very well to this day. So I love documentary editing. I could totally see myself being a full-time doc editor again. Um, You know, I don't ever expect to stop teaching, so that day will probably never come, but I do love it. You know, there's nothing like disappearing into a cut for just hours and hours or on end or even weeks on end, um, months on end sometimes. I love being a documentary. I don't shoot. (laughs) I'm not a great shooter, honestly. I I don't take great pictures. I don't take great um, footage. I'm just not much of a shooter. I've really never been, sadly. Um, I do, you know... Producing, I what I love about producing is I actually do enjoy fundraising. I do enjoy grant writing. Um, I enjoy, obviously, the raising money part. It's nice to have money coming in, but also the way in which you have to think about your 
story and think bigger picture about why you're making the film, how you're framing it, um, and really writing about it. You know, it's connected to my passion for editing um, in that I, I like writing, whether it's with pictures, with sound, or with words, you know, sort of crafting a narrative. So I very much enjoy the producing side. I don't necessarily think that I love all the logistics of producing all of the booking flights and all that stuff. I find that sort of tiresome. But the the fundraising part and the dealing with potential funders, investors, grantors, that part I really like. And then the directing, you know, this is the first film that I've uh, solo directed in a long time. I co-directed, I think, my last four films maybe. So, you know, it was fun. It was a challenge. I wanted to take on a solo directing film, you know, and just and see what it would be like. I was scared to do it. I hadn't done it in years and years, and there's some comfort in having a co-director. You always have someone to sort of turn to. And it was part of why I wanted to keep this film short, was I was like, you know what, I'm ready to direct my own film, but I want to do it short. I definitely can't envision myself directing a feature alone. It, that just sounds way too daunting and scary. So I'm going to keep it kind of short and sweet. And then I ended up having this really wonderful partner in uh, Max Treble, that director of animation that I talked about. It was almost like we had co-directed it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think that of all of the those pieces, I mean, certainly directing does come naturally to me. Um, I think editing, you know, I don't consider myself necessarily a gifted editor, but I do enjoy the process. Um, and I, yeah, I just think that as documentary filmmakers, the more of those hats that you can wear, the better served you'll be so that you're not always farming out, especially the editing. You know, I always tell my students, if you possibly can edit, do it because it's creative work, it's lucrative, um, it's very, very gratifying and fulfilling. You know, I really try to push students in that direction if they are at all prone to it and at all eager to edit. Well, gosh, this is it's a really interesting to hear you talk about each of these things. And um, speaking of producing and fundraising, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you funded the film. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I got a Chapman University grant, a faculty grant, um, a pretty substantial grant that was able to fund most of the movie, honestly. Um, and then... I paid out of pocket for the composers slash sound designers who are wonderful, Andrew and Polly. They also did a lot of the they do a lot of the Chapman student films. Um I think I paid out of pocket for the sound mix. You know, I had some out of pocket costs. Most of the money went to the animator because it was just so, so expensive. Um I was also able to use that grant to buy like toys and things for the kids. Just, you know, little things, thank you gifts. Um and then I got I mean, that that basically was the bulk of, that was basically production, was that grant, production, post-production. And then I received another grant from Chapman for outreach and impact work. And I've since then gotten several grants. I just got a chicken and egg grant for outreach and impact work and a prospective fund grant. Um, and also one from the New England Foundation for Psychoanalysis. And then a couple of substantial private donations. So funding funding the impact piece has not been challenging at all. I've raised almost $100,000 actually for that, which is a lot more than it costs to make the movie. That's incredible. Congratulations. And Thank you. do you have any Yeah, you're you're welcome. Do you have any advice for first-time filmmakers? Obviously, you're an educator, so you you spend a, a lot of time helping first-time filmmakers, but um for our listeners, do you have any tips? 
I just think that it can be so hard to make a film. There are so many obstacles against you when you're making a documentary. There's, you know, maintaining access, finding and getting access, maintaining access, raising the money that you sometimes need to pay people to help you shoot, edit. Um, Then once you're done, getting the film out there. So, you know, for me, I think that one of the the keys to being able to successfully sort of launch a career in documentary filmmaking and kind of keep it going has been working with co-directors, correctors, actually, co-directors. You know, I know that it's difficult sometimes to work with others, and I know a lot of documentary filmmakers kind of want to do it alone. But I just, you know, for me, having somebody else who I'm accountable to has been an absolutely core part of the process every single time. I just don't think I could do it any other way. So I would say that, you know, surround yourself with a team that you like, whether it's a co-director or a shooter that you like and rely on or an editor. Um, make sure you're not just a solo person with an idea, just completely overwhelmed about where to start. I would start by putting together the team and really be open to other people's ideas and realize that almost always what you can produce in conjunction with other people is going to be more effective than anything you can do totally on your own. That's interesting because, um, for one thing, uh, co-directing definitely seems less common than than mm-hmm. just having a sole director. How, how do you, um, when you enter into these partnerships, how do you communicate about like um, creative potential creative differences? If there are creative differences, do you have a strategy ahead of time about how you're going to deal with that? Um. Well, I think ultimately there's all there are always going to be creative differences just because you're two people with two different brains. I think the most important thing is making sure that you respect each other. Um, hopefully, you know, you admire each other's work. You see that the person, your co-director, has some talent already and you respect that and want to be a part of that. You know, I think having that mutual respect there is really important. And then just keeping as open of a dialogue as you can um, about, yeah, you know, knowing that there are going to be creative differences and um, ultimately realizing, you know, the truth of it all, which is that we like to think that we're always right, but we're very rarely always right. You know, often somebody else's opinion might be more valuable than our own. I think we just kind of forget that. So I think just keeping communication open is really the key. Well, that makes sense. A lot of um, first-time filmmakers start off with shorts for obvious reasons, including the the budget. And I'm wondering if you could provide some insight about how shorts can help advance a filmmaker's career. I mean, it sounds like you've had many, many opportunities as a result of making, you know, this this recent short. And so, um, again, any tips for people starting out who are planning to make a short film? And trying to fundraise for the short film? Well, basically, how how a short film can really advance your career, how you yeah. shouldn't see it as less than a feature. I mean, obviously, you yeah. made several features. Now you made a short, and it's opened a, a whole bunch of new doors. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, and I, I understand, you know, that, that uh, judgment that we make that sort of says, well, um, features are more substantial. I'm not really a filmmaker until I've made a feature, And, yeah, I think features are wonderful, and everybody should try it, but they also can be very, very overwhelming. They can take usually years, years and years of work. 
um, usually, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to raise, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to raise. Shorts don't cost as much money. They're faster. They're easier. Um, you're more likely to finish it just because it's shorter, which, you know, that's 95% of the game is just getting done what you start. Um, they're certainly easier to do on your own, and they're easier to get into festivals. You know, festivals have only a handful of slots for features, um, depending on the fest, maybe 5, 10, 15, and then they have maybe, what, 40, 50 slots for shorts, just depending on the festival. And and <laughs> what's more, shorts are, um, you know, the submission fees to festivals are cheaper. Sometimes they're easier to do impact work with and even educational work. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a place for all of the lengths, all the forms. I do think it's worth just um, keeping an open mind and being willing to try something new. And especially if you're in a boat like I was, um, which is you're, you've you've done a lot of co-directing, even if you've done features and you're ready to try something that feels more daunting. In my case, it was doing a solo-directed film. It's definitely easier and more manageable to kind of dive into that if you're if it's a short. That all makes sense. And, uh, you know, I never really thought about festivals picking more shorts before, so I'm glad you pointed that out. And obviously, yeah. as you mentioned, it's been great for impact. The the only place where it seems like sometimes shorts are have a little bit of a question mark is that even though even though attention spans are shrinking and I think people love watching shorts, there there's doesn't seem to be a great streaming platform just devoted to that, you know, right now. Um but or correct me if I'm wrong. If Quibi came and went, and yeah, um, no, absolutely. Yeah. I was gonna say I think that that's the that's the catch with all of these wonderful, um, you know, merits of short docs. There is the question of okay, after your festival run, then what? You know, if you do some impact work with it, that's certainly wonderful, um, and probably relatively easy to do educationally. You can certainly sell short docs. But as far as broadcaster streaming, that is definitely the more difficult piece. There aren't that many places online that have a home for short docs. I mean, some of the streamers have some short docs featured, but really like a handful. So I think that's the one major obvious downside of shorter docs for sure. Yeah, hopefully that will change. I know you have some really exciting projects in the works, and I'm wondering if you would like to or are able to share anything about about that. Yeah, um I you know, I this was such a fun piece to make and I did sort of think to myself at one point, gosh, I wonder I just talked to kids about what they think about gender. I wonder what they think about other issues. So that is what I'm working on next is a series um that, you know, basically uses the same format to have kids exploring other pressing issues as well. And, um, yeah, you know, I just – I was not ready to move on from my work with kids. It's just too fun, too gratifying, um, you know, too – just too much enjoyment for me to be ready to move on from the world of children. Well, I'm glad to hear that because this is such a great film, and, and um, I'm just – you know, I I know people who see it are, are you know, really enjoying it. So, um, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, can you tell us where where can we see it next? Uh, well, definitely you can get engaged right now. The film is not online publicly. 
Uh, we will have some film festival appearances. The film will be at Frameline in San Francisco. Um, it'll be at the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis. Um, all, most festivals these days have a virtual component, so don't worry if you're not local. Um, you can get passes and see it online. And then you can definitely engage with us. Uh, we have a pretty big social media campaign. We've got, um, you know, for starters, the website, which is mamahasamustache.com. And then you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. I have my personal account, Sally Urban Films. There's also uh, Mama Has a Mustache accounts. And, yeah, we have a pretty active mailing list. We do send out blasts, news about the film. So that would be the way to really engage if you're curious to see it. Great. And what what is the social media handle for the film? Uh, Mama Has a Mustache. No O in mustache. That's the European spelling. All right. Well, good tip there for anyone who who wasn't sure how to spell it. And finally, is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share with us? No, just I do encourage people to engage. You know, the film is so short. Um, It's so easy and fun to watch. And, yeah, reach out if you'd like to see it. Um, You know, you can connect. As I said, you can connect on the site, our mailing list. And, yeah, I just love sharing the film and hearing what people think of it. And thank you so, 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 so much to you and Claire for having me. Oh, absolutely. It's our pleasure. It's always, um, you know, I love talking to filmmakers about films that I love. And this is one of those films that I really love. It's just just fantastic. I think, you know, one of the strengths is that it, it tackles some topics that for some people are very delicate, but it does it in a way that's just so positive and it, I hope it will open the minds of people who, you know, haven't maybe thought about these issues so much. So, so you know, excellent work. And thank you, Claire, for your help today. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Yes. All right. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Heather. And be well, everyone. Thank you. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.